your state, your team, your show. This is Sports Nightly. Adrian gets the snap, holds it, looks, sets, throws, pass, caught, one, yeah, first down, hits on the 20, 15, shoots the defender, 10, 5, touchdown, Nebraska, Juan Dale Robinson's first touchdown as a Cornhusker. Now, let's check the pulse of Husker Nation with your hosts, Greg Sharp and Ben McLaughlin. Thank you. Welcome to the Tuesday Night Show of Sports Island. Thank you so much for spending some of your night with us here tonight. We'll try to do you proud. Well, Austin had some of the thunder in the headlines, and it starts with Husker football and the, at least to me, shocking decision made by Noah Vedrill to enter the transfer portal as a graduate transfer, which he would be eligible immediately. And with two years of eligibility left, I would think that Noah would be appealing to some programs around the country. But I did not see this coming. The young man who followed Scott Frost back from UCF to Lincoln, grew up in Wahoo, was a prep standout in our area, came back, got – Eligible halfway through his first year, played a few games that first season, and then last year was the backup quarterback to Adrian Martinez and looked like he was going to be a guy that this program could count on for quite a while, very well liked within the program. But I'm guessing, Ben, the lure, the desire for more playing time is pulling Noah away from this Husker program. And I, for one, sorry to see this news today. Yeah, really, really unfortunate because uh, I know that he was a fan favorite around here and people love Noah's uh, his background with his family ties to Nebraska and just how good of an athlete he was, um, you know, playing in the in the last major sport that we had at Nebraska men's hoops, um, you know, just kind of displayed that athleticism. Um, but. To me, no matter who would have left Greg in that quarterback room, it would have been surprising to pick one out. I think uh, all of those guys are brought here for a reason, and it's becoming a crowded room with with really talented players. And I think um, probably starting to see the writing on the wall of uh, just the the lack of snaps probably available. Granted, last year, you know, we saw a lot of Noah because of the injuries to adrian martinez but i think everybody that uh was around the team saw the potential in a guy named luke mccaffrey and i know the coaches are are very excited about logan smothers and so when you start figuring all that out um plus you throw in the two-year starter and adrian you can see that snaps would be hard to come by so no matter who it would have been if any of them left was it was it adrian was it was it noah was it uh, Luke was it Logan I mean if any of them left I would I would have been surprised at which every one of them individually but when you think about it as a whole it's not so surprising that one of them did decide to leave and you know want to go be a starter somewhere probably the the biggest check mark for Noah would be he's in the same grade as Adrian they're both juniors they both have well Adrian actually has three years of eligibility left two let me restate that. He has two years of eligibility left. He has three years to play him. He could have a redshirt year if he would need it at any point in time where Noah has used up his redshirt year. But they're they're in the same class. So they both have two years of eligibility left. Where McCaffrey, because he redshirted last year, there now is a two-year gap between Adrian and Noah at one point and, and him. Now Adrian and Luke, two-year gap. And then Logan you would think would be ticketed to redshirt this year, so he would be another year behind Luke. So uh, that probably factored into the decision, and I think Noah played enough at UCF and at Nebraska, Ben, that he's like, I can start for somebody. I can play a lot, and that's what I want to do for my last two years. Here, I'll probably get snaps but it won't be consistent, and it won't. I won't be the guy. I, I mean, I get, I understand it. I totally get it. But I do think the fact that he and Adrian were married up with the same number of eligible years left is probably the reason why he's decided to to try to find playing time elsewhere. Yeah, I think. It, I mean, again, you, on the whole, it makes sense. Um, and and Noah can play at this level. We watched him do it, and I think that he deserves the right to play somewhere. I don't blame him at all for wanting to go 
somewhere else and try and be a starter. But I think more than anything, if you're if you're a high school quarterback now, you got to understand what type of situation that you're walking into. No matter where you go, there's only one quarterback, and a lot of schools carry three or four scholarship guys. So if you're not the one, and there's one your age or younger, you're either going to have to straight beat him out, or you have to get used to your role as a backup. Because yeah, you're probably going to be able to inherit a little better situation when you transfer, but it's the still it's still the same situation. Look at Tristan Jebia; that job was all his at Oregon State, and then he transfers over there. And they have somebody better. And so it's the same situation for him where he's sitting behind somebody. So I understand that there's a lot of high school quarterbacks out there that that think they are number one quarterbacks and think they're going to be number one quarterbacks. But the reality is the number of open jobs compared to the number of applicants are some completely outweighed. And, and I think there needs to be a level of understand that. And I'm, I'm not saying that everyone needs to be Riker Fife and spend five years as a backup and stay at Nebraska the whole time and and just accept the fact that you're a backup. I'm all for kids that, you know, like an A.J. Bush, for example, he stuck it out a few years, and he realized that Nebraska was going to have better options than A.J. Bush while he was here, so he decided to transfer. And then you look at where he ended up. He was never the starter at Virginia Tech. You know, it just you the grass isn't always greener, and I think especially when it comes to quarterback, there's only one of them on the field at the same time. You can make that argument for running back too, but – People are always changing out backs. It's rare that you run a one-back system. This might be, um, you know, one of the few positions where there's only one at the on the field. In best case scenario, without injury, you know, one on the field for the entire length of the game, and and and, and God willing, the entire length of the season. So, I think quarterbacks at this day and age need to start understanding that because we are seeing a ton of them leave, not just at Nebraska. Yeah. Well, look at Joe Burrow, the Heisman Trophy winner. He didn't he didn't end up In fact, it's what what the the stat is, you've got like two of the last three quarterback Heisman Trophy winners weren't at the school they initially signed with. Joe Burrow and you would have also had uh well, Baker Mayfield who started at Texas Tech. Uh you know, I th- I think maybe part of my surprise Ben is that he is a Nebraska kid and sometimes the pull of playing for dear old NU keeps you around. I and mean, you mentioned Riker Fife. That, I think that's what factored into my decision, maybe added to my surprise of this. What, what I want from you is just, it, it appeared to me, and you, you were much closer to it than I am because you're down there in that sideline during games, that Noah was a great teammate, that he was really well-liked, that he was always there rooting for whoever was out there, whether it was Luke getting snaps, whether it was Adrian getting the snaps, it appeared that Noah was really well-liked and a big part of the team his two years here. There's no doubt that he was. And Noah Noah was interesting because he knew the offense better than anybody. He knew the offense better than Adrian when he showed up here because of the amount of time that he spent in it. And no matter what happened, whether Adrian would throw a pick or score a 50-yard touchdown, Noah was always the first one off the sideline on the headset greeting him or picking him up after a bad play. And that's what I noticed it the most. After something bad happened, Noah was always out there um, doing his best to pick up his teammate and explain things to him, which is why it made it so cool when Adrian was hurt and he wasn't playing that he got to return the favor for Noah when Noah was out there. And good or bad things happened. It was it was Adrian Martinez out there doing the same thing and providing that same service for Noah and, you know, he, he was a very mature guy. Uh, I think he was very wise beyond his years. And you could tell that that played well into his quarterback play because he was so smart, his ability to, to pick up an offense. He didn't have the biggest arm. He wasn't the fastest guy. But what he lacked for in physical tools, he made up for with his knowledge. And I think, you know, that's what's going to make him attractive to a lot of schools is not only is he a good athlete, but I think he's, his football IQ is at a pretty high level and is going to be able to come in and, and grasp something right away. And you know, I think he's going to be successful. I just think the way Nebraska recruits the quarterback position, there's a lot of intrigue for high school players to want to come play in this offense, and we've seen that every single year. Coach Verdusco has brought somebody in that we're excited about. I think uh, you know the more that the staff is able to recruit quarterbacks, the harder it is going to be able to get snaps at that position. 866-HOSKER-1-866-487-5371, the number if you want to sound off on this news today of Noah Vedro going to graduate from UNL here in about a week. 
uh, and then become a graduate transfer with two years of eligibility, which will make him very marketable to a lot of schools who go, okay, I'm not just renting a guy for a year. I'm going to get somebody maybe for two seasons to be my starting quarterback. Let's head to the phone. Let's go to West Point. Pete, you're going to lead us off tonight. Good evening. Good evening. How you doing? Good, Pete. How you doing? Pretty good. Pretty good. I guess I got a little different take. You know, I, I thought last year Noah Vedro played uh, Martinez. If you look at his completion percentage and the amount of uh, interceptions he had, I know he had a limited number of snaps, but the snaps he did get, I think he outplayed uh, the starter. And, and I think he got a little bit of a raw deal towards the end of the year. I think he could have helped this team. And uh, the coach chose uh, to play the starter. And uh, I, I. Family. I hope. Where you're breaking up on your phone. Like you, I mean, I, hey, I think Pete's not alone, Ben. I think there's a lot of people that feel like Noah looked like the better guy at times. For Nebraska last year, we even heard the drumbeat toward the end of the year that people wanted to see more of Luke McCaffrey, which I think, I don't know how much that factored into his decision. Um, it might have, but yeah, I mean, Noah can play, and I don't think there's any doubt about that. Yeah, he can, and I look, Noah was banged up too. I mean, it's not like he was 100% healthy all the time. I mean, that he, he was banged up while he was out there. I mean, all of them were to a certain extent, but I would agree. When Noah was out there, there wasn't significant drop-off at all. Um, I mean, if not improved play at times from what we saw from Adrian. But uh, the coaches are there evaluating practice every single day, uh, the days that we're not. And Coach Frost has said he's going to put the best player out there at all 11 positions, and quarterback included. And, um, you know, I think, you know, for right now, we've got to trust his opinion. And, you know, whoever's out there at quarterback for Nebraska – coaches believe that he's going to give the team the best chance to win Noah did not throw a touchdown pass last year how about that didn't throw a pick didn't throw a touchdown pass and he made a couple of starts right he started yeah. the Minnesota game and who, who we put after Minnesota maybe Indiana yeah I think it was Indiana he, he started those two games did not throw a touchdown pass do you how do you feel about that position now I mean McCaffrey's still there Logan Smothers the true freshman from Alabama is now in in on campus or well he was about to go much sure he is right now but I I'm not all that concerned about that spot it does certainly take a a veteran guy behind Adrian off the field because Luke didn't get a lot of snaps last year yeah I mean I'm gonna need to see Luke in the weight room a little bit I think what I don't want is that to turn into a flash in the pan you know him play well in a couple of packages or in a couple situations and people just assume that that he's a great quarterback he's going to be a great quarterback but uh I mean he has to be able to sustain that and be consistent with it and and I'm yet to see Logan from what we hear from the coaches that this is a young man that can really play and isn't necessarily known for his speed but probably should be because of how fast he is coach Verdusco compared him to Luke just as fast just as athletic as Luke McCaffrey so I want to give you know them some time to get acclimated in the offense but uh you know I think Adrian right now is 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 the guy he's the one that is going to get the first crack uh in the fall whenever whenever that is and he's earned that and you know but I also think Adrian got humbled last year and and Adrian understands that he needs to up that level of play and you know I've, I've said this all along I'm a firm believer that Adrian is at his best when his back's against the wall, and I think he feels that right now. There's no talk of Heisman. There's no talk of greatest quarterback of all time. There's there's none of that. Right now it's just prove, prove to us that you belong as Nebraska's a starter, and I think that's when Adrian thrives as a player. All right, uh, need to take a break. When we come back, Nate Klaus of HuskerOnline.com going to join us. We're going to talk about the big Jaeger. They committed to Nebraska last night, the offensive lineman from Utah. became the fifth commitment to the 2021 class. So we'll get Nate's take on how he evaluated Logan Smothers when he was doing this Well, glad to be joined on the program now by Nate Klaus of HuskerOnline.com. Hello, Nate. How are you doing tonight? I'm doing well. How are you? Fantastic. A little windy outside, but that's all right. We'll hang on to this. Before we jump into to Branson Yeager, I just want your thoughts 
Were you surprised, caught off guard at all by the announcement today that Noah Vedral was going to leave the program? Um, I would say maybe a little, but at the same time, I I think in the back of my mind, I knew this could be a possibility. Uh, I knew that he was nearing graduation, which would essentially make him a a two-year grad transfer, um, which is pretty rare and and makes you somewhat of a a hot commodity when you're a quarterback that has the skill set of Noah Vedral and the experience that he does. Uh, in, in addition to having two years of eligibility uh, eligible right away. So um, you know, I, I thought that might be a possibility, but at the same time, I, I did, it wasn't a situation where I was like, yep, that's definitely happening either. So, um, you know, you have to wish Noah Vedral the best of luck. He's certainly, um, he certainly, we all know that he bleeds Husker Red, and, uh, and he's done a lot for this program, as has his, uh, his family too. Okay, so we all know about Adrian Martinez. We've watched him for two years. We saw a little bit of Luke McCaffrey. Remind all of us about Logan Smothers, who's now a part of the program, arrived in January, was going to go through the entire spring ball, got the two practices in, and then got shut down. But uh, dig into your extensive files and tell us an update on Logan Smothers about what kind of quarterback he's going to be for this program. Yeah, you know, I I think that a lot of people saw – glimpses of, of uh, you know, obviously we've all seen what Adrian can do, uh, especially when, when he's perfectly healthy. Uh, and we all saw kind of glimpses of what McCaffrey can do uh, in this offense last year. And, and, and I would say that Logan Smothers is every bit as talented, if not maybe a little bit more so than, than Luke McCaffrey. I think that, um, you know, what you're getting is maybe a little bit more polished quarterback uh, from top to bottom than what Luke was when he first entered the program. Uh, and every bit is is athletic. You know, you're, you're talking about a kid who uh, um, qualified in the state of Alabama in the 100 and 200 and 400, uh, you know, uh, at the state track meet and, and placed in, I believe, the 100 and the 200. So uh, he's extremely athletic. He's a winner. He's he's a coach's kid, just like Luke is. Um, you know, he's grown up playing football. His one of his older brothers, I think holds uh, or is second all-time wins in the state of Alabama history uh, because he, he started as an eighth grader um, at, at the varsity level. So uh, it's, it's a family that is, uh, has very deep football roots uh, in the state of Alabama. And, um, and, and I think that uh, he's a very exciting prospect. The Huskers knew exactly what they were wanting or, or knew what they were looking for when they, when they saw him too, because uh, the, really the only offer that, that Logan had when Nebraska pulled the trigger on one was South Alabama. And it was shortly after Nebraska offered that uh, there was a slew of others that came after him, including uh, Ohio state uh, and several other programs. And, and those teams didn't let up either. I think you have to remember that Logan Smothers was committed to Nebraska for almost 19 months uh, before he eventually signed with the Huskers. And so, um, you know, I, I think that he's a he's a very intriguing prospect and someone I think we're going to talk a lot more about here in the next year or two. Oh, very exciting. Good stuff. Nate Klaus with us from HuskerOnline.com. You want at least one quarterback in every class. Update us on where that position fits in 2021. I know there have been a few names that have come off the board in the last week at the quarterback spot for Nebraska. Where are they at looking for their signal caller for the 2021 class? Yeah, it's kind of a unique situation where Nebraska's at for the the quarterback recruiting. Generally, at this stage in in the recruiting cycle, you you know, there's three or four um, offered prospects that you can point to and say uh, that, that Nebraska is either leading for them or that they're very much in the mix to land that prospect. But right now, I think given the way the quarterback room sets up, and that may have changed ever so slightly with the departure of Noah Vedral, but uh, I think right now, you know, they're, they're approaching quarterback recruiting as a whole a little bit slower, uh, maybe much more deliberate um, in, in their approach than, than what they normally would be. Uh, I think that not only are they looking for somebody that fits the athletic uh, profile of what they want to position, but they're, they're looking for somebody that fits the mental profile too, because they are walking into a very talented quarterback room right now. Um, and, and they would have to know that, Hey, you know, nothing's going to be handed to you. Um, you're going to have to work for everything that you get, um, including just reps and practice. And so uh, I think that they're being very selective with the players they're after. 
Um, you know, one of one of the players that, that they are in communication with and recruiting heavily right now is uh, Heinrich Harburg out of Kearney Catholic. Um, now they have yet to offer him, but they are recruiting him fairly uh, fairly hard. He's he's visited campus a couple of times uh, back in December, and, and he actually w- was able to see one of Nebraska's uh, just. I think one or two spring practices. So um, he, he, he was on campus just not too long ago. I think the main reason why they have yet to offer is because they were hoping to kind of be hands-on with him and watch him throw in person uh, during, during camps. Um, now, you know, it kind of remains to be seen what, what's going to happen with Nebraska's football camps. But, um, you know, it's looking like camps are going to not happen this year. So I'm not sure how that impacts uh, his recruitment as far as when or if Nebraska will offer, but uh, that's kind of the the situation right now. They've lost Peter Costelli, uh, who they offered and who had visited campus three or four times in the past. Uh, Ari Patu was another recruit that they were were after but had not offered yet, much like Heinrich Harburg. Uh, He committed to Stanford, and and so I think that kind of has elevated Harburg up to maybe being the next man up. Uh, And it all kind of depends on when, if or when, they're going to eventually offer him. Again, we're visiting with Nate Klaus of HuskerOnline.com here on Sports Nightly on the Husker Sports Network. Okay, big news last night. I mean big. And Branson Yeager from Grantsville, Utah. This guy is a mountain, Nate. This is a one big human being that's committed to Nebraska. Yeah, Branson certainly is. Uh, he's 6'8", 330 pounds, um, and, and a really unique prospect. I mean, he, he plays – uh, offensive tackle, both left and right tackle, plays defensive tackle. He's a long snapper for his team. He pretty much does it all. Uh, and, and you can see, you know, just by turning on the film uh, in the first couple of clips, why Nebraska was after him. Because not only does he fit that profile in terms of being a very big prospect, uh, but he's extremely athletic. For a 6'8", 330-pound kid to, to move the way he does and operate so well in space, the way that he does is, is pretty rare. Um, and then you get to know him, and he's very intelligent. Uh, so that checks a box. He, he's kind of a throwback, uh, uh, you know, a Husker offensive lineman in terms of the demeanor that he plays with. He, he's pretty nasty on the football field, so that checks a box. Uh, he's a hunter. He's an outdoorsman. He loves uh, to, to kind of, uh, you know, be out. He'd, he'd rather be fishing or hunting than, than going to a, to a house party or something like that. So that checks a box. And um, everything that, that he has, all of his intangibles and all his athletic ability, uh, really fits well with what the Huskers have, have wanted to add at that offensive line position. We've heard Scott Frost, Nate, say really since he took the job that he didn't feel like Nebraska was big enough. We look at these three linemen that are committed for this class. These guys are these guys are mountains. You're seeing a pattern here, aren't you, with what Nebraska is going on, particularly along the offensive line to recruit. Yeah, you really are. I mean, the the profile just in terms of raw size in in their frames that that Nebraska is adding along the offensive line is really really impressive. Uh, I mean, Jaeger is is six eight three thirty. Henry Latovsky is six six three ten. Uh, Teddy Prohaska is six nine. Uh, 280. Um, I mean, and then you've got, you know, the past couple of classes, um, you know, last year they added two kids in Corcoran and Khan that are 6'6", 280. Um, you know, Bryce Benhart is 6'9", 300 pounds. And, uh, and in that entire class of, of Benharts, I mean, those are all really big kids. Um, and so I mean, they, they have really gone after kids that have huge frames that are going to be able to be uh, developed in the weight room by Zach Duvall, uh, or they've gone after kids who are already uh, massive in size and, and pretty filled out, but may just have to change their body composition just a little bit. So, uh, But regardless, uh, they are targeting size and, and kids that, that are athletic and, and that can run. So kind of, uh, I think it's, you know, I think it, when I look at what they're adding, it's, it's kind of that throwback Nebraska offensive lineman with a, with a little bit of a twist of, of you know, the, the, the more up-tempo spread that, that Nebraska has wanted to run, too. So that power and spread uh, mixture, a combination of those guys. And Nate, do you think the Jaeger commitment surprised them? Do, they, do you think they anticipated that this was about to come? You know, I, I think they knew they were sitting pretty well with him, but uh, I do think that it was a little bit of a surprise of the timing of it all. And, and in fact, um, last time I spoke with him, he said that, 
he was still pretty sure he was going to be making a decision or wanting to make a decision in August, uh, you know, before his senior season started. Um, but then again, I, I, I talked with him after he made the decision. And he said, you know what? I just felt so right. Uh, I'd gotten to know the coaching staff so well. Um, you know, he'd taken the virtual visits and, and has done that whole deal uh, that Nebraska has set up for, for a number of, of, of their high-priority recruits. Um, he felt comfortable uh, with Lincoln. Uh, he's got family in Kansas, so he's been to the Midwest before. That that was no big thing for him. Uh, but it, more than anything, it was just the relationships that he had built with Tony Tuioti, who was his lead recruiter, Greg Austin, uh, who's going to be his position coach, and then, of course, uh, Scott Frost. And, um, and, and he's a pretty straight and narrow guy. He's, he's not a whole lot of games played with his recruitment. So he said, you know, I knew where I wanted to go and I wasn't going to string anybody along. So I went ahead and committed to Nebraska. Good. Nate, great stuff as always. We appreciate it. Thank you so much for jumping on board with us tonight. and Look forward to seeing you down the road. Sounds good. Take care. We think them up. We count them down. It's Top Ten Tuesdays on Sports Nightly. Top Ten Tuesdays brought to you by Union Bank and Trust at Union Bank and Trust. All your banking needs are taken care of by real people who really care. Stop by and you'll see that you belong here. Union Bank and Trust, member FDIC. Well, guys, I thought with the Michael Jordan documentary, The Last Dance, about the Bulls dynasty of the 90s, that a, a fun top ten list would be top 10 pro sports dynasties and man going through back the research in this was a blast for me because it just brought back so many memories of so many great teams and all the different sports i had a hard time cutting this down to 10 i don't know about you boys for me it was hard to write any of these teams down because i hated a lot of them um, <laughs> i think this is where my hatred for a lot of these teams come is just how good they've been and uh how tired of them i got but uh, I swallowed my pride and, you know, put together what I felt was a pretty good list. Austin, how about you? Who said anything about cutting it down to 10? Just kidding. I did. That's true. I got down you to would 10. be the guy. Well, I have a tie for ninth. <laughs> I have a tie for sixth. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I'm going to start. This is my category tonight, so I'm going to give this one a go. My number 10, I'm going to the National Football League. The Dallas Cowboys from 1992 to 1995. They won three Super Bowls in a four-year run. Troy Aikman, Emmett Smith, Michael Irvin, Jimmy Johnson, the coach, Jerry Jones, the bamblastic uh, owner of the Cowboys. You hated them, right? You had to hate the Dallas Cowboys, but boy, were they good during that run. I got the Cowboys at number 10. You can take the past tense off that word. You could take the D <laughs> off of hated. Uh, because Sorry, that, Jeremy. That's never left. Um, yeah, it, when, when I meet somebody and they're a fan of the Cowboys, I have to evaluate uh, what type of person they are, and if I can deal without them in my life, uh, unless your name's <laughs> Luke Gifford, then uh, or Malik Collins, that that's that those are the only passes that that I that I give when it comes to liking the Cowboys. All right, my number ten, I'm going uh, I'm going to hockey. I've got two NHL squads on here, and I'm going to the late well, basically the entire '80s from '82 to 1990. The Edmonton Oilers, led by the great one Wayne Gretzky. Uh, they won the Stanley Cup five times in seven seasons. They lost in the finals the year before that, much like the Bulls. Uh, obviously, Wayne Gretzky and Mark Messier, two of the greatest players uh, in NHL history, were a part of that team. Uh, the NHL uh, record of goals happened during that time in the 83-84 Oilers season, and Wayne Gretzky almost had 1,000 points in those eight seasons, which is just absolutely unheard of. So the Edmonton Oilers... Uh, between 82 and 90, number 10 on my list. They were a tough cut from my list, but I pick a third sport here at number 10. I'm going with the Atlanta Braves from 1991 to 2005. That squad won the division all but one year in that stretch. Three World Series appearances and only won once. That knocks them down my list a little bit, but winning the division that frequently counts for something. And this is a team I grew up watching on TV all the time, so a bit of a nostalgia pick thinking back to watching Larry and uh, and Andrew Jones, Greg Smoltz, even Jeff Francoeur from time to time. So the 91 to 2005 Braves are my number 10. How about that starting rotation? Are you kidding me? Glavin, Smoltz, Maddox, Gemini. Insane. Insane. And, you know, a couple of my all-time favorite players were on those teams. Grew up watching them with Chipper Jones, Andrew Jones, Rafael Fercal, Javi Lopez, Andres Galarraga, uh, Ryan Klesko. 
Brian Jordan, all those team, all those guys were. I mean, it was a it was must see TV. It was a I'd go go play my baseball game, my my uh, youth game, and I'd come home, eat dinner, and watch the Braves every night. All right, my number nine. I'm going to the National Basketball Association. I've got the Los Angeles Lakers in the decade of the '80s. From '80 80 to '88, they won five titles. Magic Johnson, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, James Worthy. I mean, this was showtime in L.A., the flash, the pageantry, Magic's big smile. All They had it all going on during that decade. Uh, they were America's team at that point in time. Love that Lakers team. Uh, they're number nine for me. All right, very good. My number nine, I'm going to the New York Yankees in the period of 1996 to 2003. They won six World Series championships um, and a three-peat from 98 to 2000. I... Uh, this, is, this was a hard for one for me to deal with because, Austin, you talked about those Braves. A lot of the times the Braves met those Yankees in the World Series. Uh, Atlanta had the longest uh, playoff streak in history during that time that you were talking about. Well, these Yankees were second in MLB history with consecutive playoff appearances. Uh, in those four World Series, you know, obviously Derek Jeter, Jorge Posada, Bernie Williams, Paul O'Neill. Mariano Rivera, Roger Clemens. I mean, the, the list goes on of, of great players that played in the pinstripes during that era, and I can proudly say I didn't like a single one. <laughs> <laughs> you and me both. Not a Yankees guy over here. Number nine has already been mentioned, at least for me. Greg had him at number 10. This is where I've got that 92 to 95 Cowboys run, Aikman, Smith, and Irvin. Quite the offense. Those three Super Bowls in four years. Heck of a run. Okay. My number eight. I have the San Francisco 49ers from 81 to 89, won four Super Bowls. Joe Montana, the lightly regarded quarterback out of Notre Dame, didn't get picked very high in the draft. But, boy, do they have some magic. Jerry Rice, Dwight Clark, Roger Craig, Tom Rathman. You have some Huskers that were part of that great run for the 49ers. The West Coast offense with Bill Walsh. They really redefined the National Football League with the style of offense that they had. Uh, so the Niners from the 80s are my number eight. Yeah, that was the first team I left off, Greg. I had them as my 10 and replaced them with the Oilers. Uh, really tough cut, but I wanted to balance it more out because I had a handful of NFL teams on here. But uh, for the sake of balance, they were they were a cut for me. All right, my number eight, I'm going back to hockey. This is this is my last hockey hockey team on here, and I'm going from 1965 to 1979, so 14 seasons for the Montreal Canadiens. They had eight titles in those 14 years. Uh, they had a four-year stretch in the mid-60s, mid to late 60s, where in five years they won four titles. And then again in the late 70s, they won four straight from 76 to 79. So from 65 to 79, uh, you win eight, title, eight titles. That's pretty dang impressive and pretty dominant in, in separate spurts. So wasn't alive to see it. Don't know a ton about hockey. But usually when you talk about you know, one of the originators in the NHL, the Canadians are the first, one of the first teams that you talk about. Are your Lightning on their way to being a dynasty anytime soon? No, because they don't no. win the Stanley Cup. No. Not yet. <laughs> we'll see. No. I'm worried that, I'm worried that, their, uh, that their, their peak has already happened. That would be most. Steven Stamkos isn't getting any younger. <laughs> True. No Benjamin Button. One team whose peak has definitely already happened, the 1956 to 1969 Boston Celtics. I really don't know how to judge them since they played so long ago, but winning 11 championships in 13 years is entirely impressive, regardless of who you're playing. So there's something to be said for taking care of business in my world, and Bill Russell sure did that. Nobody could beat him. I mean, he had Wilt Chamberlain with the Lakers for a good chunk of that. He also played for the Warriors, Philadelphia Warriors. Nobody could beat him. They were just un unstoppable. And think about the Hall of Famers that came off of that team. You mentioned mm -hmm. Russell, but Kuzi, Havlicek, I mean, they were, they were just incredible. All right, my number seven, Ben had it earlier, the Edmonton Oilers, that great run. They are one of you had it. Maybe both had it. Uh, so I've got Edmonton Oilers here, the five cups they had in seven years. Hard to deny that. And they had the best player on the planet in Wayne Gretzky. Yep, best player to ever do it and probably will ever do it. My number seven, uh, here's where I go to the NFL for the first time. I've got the Pittsburgh Steelers uh, from, the, from the mid to late 70s here. They're run from 72 to 79. Uh, they won seven of the eight AFC Central championships during that time, four Super Bowl titles in mm. six years. Obviously, the names that pop up when you talk about those teams, starting first, of course, with Terry Bradshaw, Franco Harris, Immaculate Reception, Lynn Swan, uh, known more. 
uh, as a receiver than maybe a sideline reporter. But <laughs> uh, Mean Joe Green, Jack Lambert, Jack Mel Blunt, um, guys that I unfortunately I never got to watch play, but have come to really idolize. I mean, Jack Lambert to me is one of my all-time. Fr- you know, if I could ever go back and watch one athlete, if we were making a top ten list there, uh, Jack Lambert's on my list. There's no doubt about it. Real lunch pail guy. We know that about you. So, yeah. I see it. <laughs> number seven for me has already been mentioned. Showtime Lakers up here. Greg had them at number nine. Okay. My number six was Ben Seven, and that's the the Steelers run. The Steel Curtain at defense. The Steel Curtain. You had the Cajun at quarterback and Terry Bradshaw. They were they were tough, and they fit the they fit the image of Pittsburgh, Steel Town, blue collar guys. You had Mean Joe Green tossing his jersey to the kid, drinking a Coca Cola. That great commercial. Um, they had it all going. So the Steelers make my list at number six. All right, very good. On to the top five now. Or excuse no, no, me, you're my six. six. We're not quite to five yet. My six. I've got the 2000 to 2010 Lakers uh, with Kobe, with Shaq, D. Fish, Trevor Ariza. Uh, again, didn't like any of those players, respected the heck out of them. It was a really hard team to beat. But when it came time to to put a list of disliked teams, Yankees and Lakers were 1-2. I mean, I know not even 1-2, 1-A and 1-B. And I still don't – I have a hard – I'm a LeBron guy, but it's hard for me to root for the Lakers to this day uh, just because of uh, just because of those teams with Kobe and Shaq and – and the in in the whole Lakers run and again they you couldn't beat them you had the, the the size and strength of Shaq down low which nobody had and then you throw in the fact that you had Kobe Bryant who was the best scorer at that time there's no doubt and then you had perfect role players that were perfectly fine much like we're watching with Chicago Derek Fisher Trevor Ariza doing what they need to do and and that that that's all that they needed so uh, I've got the Lakers run from 2000 to 2010 as my number six for me at number six, another one that's already been mentioned. This is where I've got the 1980s 49ers. They carried some of that success into the 90s, but never quite got to the heights of the 80s. Steve Young couldn't quite live up to Joe Montana. Close. He was really good, but could not quite carry, carry it on. And then the Cowboys took over uh, right at the end of that. All right, to the top five we go. My number five, I'm going back to the ice. And I've got the New York Islanders. From 80 to 84, they won four straight cups. You went four in a row in a pro sports league that's really hard to do that's really about the only blip the islanders have had as a franchise but they were dominant for those four years they might my list with winning four straight at number five yeah i mean there, there was a time there you know just a few years ago with with johnny t johnny Tavares, where they were trying mm-hmm. to trying to bust through but just they couldn't get enough help around them so um yeah you're right it's been tough tough sledding sick since all right, my number five has been mentioned by both of you. I've got the Showtime Lakers from the 80s here with Magic and, and Kareem, and you're right, just all about the flash. You had Magic John. I mean, we just start with the name Magic, right, with his flashy passes, and then you got the iconic hook shot to follow. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's they're one of the most iconic sports run teams ever in any sport, uh, those Showtime Lakers. Another iconic basketball dynasty. You have to hear me out on this one a little bit. I've got LeBron at number five. Guy played in eight straight finals. Yes, it was with a couple of different teams, but the number of miles he put on his leg, he won the two with some help with the Heat, and then winning that one for Cleveland in 2016 was just absolutely incredible. Some of the best basketball I've ever watched. So just seeing LeBron drag his teams to eight straight finals, not really getting much of a break in there. I think LeBron qualifies as a dynasty. He's my number five. That's going to be a trend now, too. You know, Kevin Durant, you know, team hopping and big threes and forming these things. This is like if we were to do this list 20 years from now, that there would be four or five of those, I think, on here. And, and more so in the NBA because you can't do it in baseball. You can't do it in football. Right. But, but in the NBA, you can. Patrick Mahomes might try to. He's going to be in Kansas City forever, <laughs> Greg. And... <laughs> It's insane what that guy's done to my free time. Like today, I spent an hour and a half analyzing the Chiefs' financial situation in the next three years uh, and and what they're going to have to do. There's a great website out there, by the way, that you can mix and match contracts and restructure and, and do your own math. Uh, I did that today, but Brett Veach did say that Patrick Mahomes is going to be in Kansas City for a long time, and, and I sure hope he's right. All right, uh, on to the top four. This one's been mentioned. It's the Yankees from 96 through to the early 2000s. They won four straight. They won four World Series up to 2000, added a couple more. 
uh, in, in the early part of that next decade. They were really good. I mean, had the best closer in baseball in Mariano Rivera. The Jeter was the captain of that team. Uh, they, they had it all rolling. It was a really, really incredible machine that they had in Yankee Stadium, and they were amazing. I've got them at four. All right, my four, Greg, uh, this is echoing something that you said from one of your hockey teams on the ice, but I'm going to uh, to the diamond here for the 49-56 to 56 Yankees with uh, Casey Stengel as the manager for New York. Five straight titles in the major leagues, um, tacked on another one in 56, so not in 54, not in 55, but uh, you had five titles in that stretch. Of course, Joe DiMaggio, Mickey Mantle, Yogi Berra, um, just a legendary group. Um, how about how about this this factoid though? When I was doing some research on the on the fifties Yankees, as dominant as that team was, they only won more than one hundred games one time in that seven season stretch, uh, and wow. and they win five titles. Uh, for yeah. as dominant as that team was, to ne- to only win a hundred once uh, was was mind boggling. But uh, when it came time to postseason, couldn't touch them. Well, they weren't playing as many games. True. They weren't playing 162, so it was a little bit harder to get up there yet. What were they? Were they 154? Does that sound right? I think it was 154, so eight fewer games to go try to get add to the total. They were, they were dominant, though. Speaking of dominant, my number four is the 90s Bulls. I didn't grow up with them. This was a little bit before my time, so I didn't come on the scene until 98. So watching the last day and seeing all this footage, hearing all these stories have been absolutely fascinating. But talking about guys you just couldn't touch in the postseason – Two three pizza in a row is pretty hard to argue with. They're my three. Uh, that's where I've got the, the Bulls teams from '91 to '98. You 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 kind of you look back at that era and you go, well, what if? What if Michael hadn't veered off course and gone and played baseball? You know, during that period of time, what would they have just swept it all the way through? Probably, maybe. Although there were some really good teams. Elijah Wan came along with with Houston at that point in time, and they were really good. The Spurs were getting to be pretty good at that point in time, but. Um, yeah, they're, they're, they're three for me in that amazing run that we're all now reliving with the last dance. Yeah. Uh, my three was mentioned already by Austin. I have it, I have it much higher here, and I got the, the run of the Celtics from 56 to 69, 11 titles in 13 years, and the only reason that this one got put behind my other two is because I wasn't alive to watch it. I mean, all I can do is watch YouTube and, and read statistics. So. Uh, had I been alive and been able to wa- watch it and, and witness it, it probably would be higher. Uh, just saying 11 titles in 13 years sounds pretty dumb. Uh, sounds like, you know, just made-up video game type stuff. But, Greg, you mentioned uh, the, the names with Kuzi and Russell and names that we didn't watch them play, but we sure as heck know what they were about on the basketball floor. So I got the Celtics run here at number three. My number three has been mentioned in part. Ben had it at number four. I extend that. Uh, mid-1900s Yankee dynasty out to 1964. So from 49 to 64, 16 seasons, the Yankees were in the World Series 14 times and won it nine times. And across all those times, they were led by six different players in wins above replacement. So Mickey Mantle, Joe DiMaggio, Yogi Berra, Roger Maris, uh, Whitey Ford, and Phil Rizzuto. So it's a lot of different guys leading the way for that team over 16 years. They kept their success going that long. Amazing. Just incredible. All right, so the final two. Here's where I've got that Celtics run that Ben just referenced. Uh, Just so many Hall of Famers on that. It was an incredible organization. The Boston Garden, the parquet floor, which they played on in Boston, which made them unique. They just had a stranglehold on the NBA and just so many Hall of Famers. And, And, you know, you had Wilt was the best player of the era, but he couldn't beat Bill Russell. Russell was the guy that could neutralize Chamberlain. And uh, so I've got Boston at number two for me. Just, I can't ignore the 11 titles in, in that span. It's just incredible. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's, it, I mean that's, a loud, that's a loud sentence. 11 titles in 13 yeah. years is pretty loud. So uh, willingly, I homered it three and two. Greg, we flip-flopped here. I've got the Bulls run here uh, in the 90s because I got to watch it. I got to live mm-hmm. it. I got to, I got to experience MJ. I got to pretend being MJ in my driveway. Uh, had a, a Dennis Rodman jersey growing up, you know. I, I I was all in on the Bulls, and and again, two two th- separate three peats that stretch. To me, the interesting part, we all knew that the Bulls were dominant and all the championships would come. But what I didn't really understand 
was the transformation of how they got there, which is what we're getting from the documentary, right? Not being able to beat Detroit. And you go even back further, you draft Michael, how different he was from everybody else on that team. Then they draft Scotty, and you could just slowly see it pick up steam to where it is right there. And then it all, of course, uh, after the 90 season into 91, that off season after 90 is where it just all clicked for them. And, and we're, we're about to see that team take off in the next week's uh, edition of The Last Dance. So homered it a little bit, put the Bulls at two. Number two for me, I go back to the gridiron. This is where I've got the Patriots. It sucks. I don't like saying it, but they've won the AFC East 17 of the last 20 seasons, including 11 in a row. Only missed the playoffs three times and were above 500 those, or two of those three years. And they've won six Super Bowls since Old Bill, or maybe it's Bill Belichick's dog, took over coaching the Patriots. I'm not quite <laughs> sure after watching the NFL draft. It sucks to say, but the Patriots are good. They're my number two. They're number one for me. I mean, I, I think it, it's so hard to do it in the sport of football. As we've said a couple of times, basketball with a guy or two, you're off and running. You got a LeBron or a Michael or a Kobe. You're, you're going to be there more times than not. It's hard to do that in football. Even if you have the great quarterback, you've got to have so many other things that work together. In the NFL, it's so much about do you have the right combination of head coach and quarterback? The Patriots have had it for two decades now. It's unbelievable. They're number one in my eyes. The only reason I was able to stomach putting these uh, these guys at one is because it's over for them. I mean, it, it, <laughs> that's the only reason I put them number one is knowing that it is going to be a long time before the Patriots win a Super Bowl again. Um, they're just they're done. They're, they're, I don't see this. By the time the Patriots are good again, Bill Belichick will be way out the door. So it'll be – they'll still be solid. They'll probably still be a playoff caliber team. But those runs of 14-2, and 15-1, automatic home field advantage in the playoffs, watching Tom Brady take the field in the playoffs, knowing they're going to make a Super Bowl, it's all over. And that makes me feel great, and it's the only reason I was able to put them number one. And I can't wait to watch Jared Stidham trot out there week one for the New England Patriots next year. It's going to be fantastic, fantastically sad, and I will laugh in points and laugh some more. Number one for me, though, I've got the San Antonio Spurs. I'm a Spurs fan, so it's a little bit of a homer pick for me. But they've made the playoffs for 22 straight seasons, mostly with the same three guys, the Duncan Parker, Ginobili, Troika, they haven't won fewer than 50 games in a season you know, across that stretch until the last couple years. The one they didn't in Greg Popovich's first 21 seasons was 98-99 when they won 37 out of their 50 games, so on pace for 60-plus. Only four first-round playoff exits compared to five NBA championships. Long live the Spurs. <laughs> There's a, there are similarities between Popovich and Belichick, right? Oh, a I mean, ton. Don't like the media. Don't give the media much of anything. Kind of seem like they're just always in a foul mood. Pop at least, like, embraces that he's a jerk, though. Like, Belichick's not even, like, nice about it. Or, <laughs> you know, like, Sager and Pop would have so much fun together because yeah. it, it, be, it became his thing, right? I mean, it's just his thing. And people seem to get humor out of pop where no, nobody just seems to like Belichick period. Nobody just likes the guy. And so it just comes across as sour grapes and, and Belichick's a cheater and pop is not. So that's another, it's another thing that, that <laughs> resonates with me. If you're not cheating. You're not trying, right? Yeah. Well, there's a lot of teams not trying. <laughs> All right. Very good. A couple of minutes left here in this hour of sports only tomorrow morning, NCAA president, Mark Emmert is going to have a press conference to talk about name image, likeness nil uh you've got some legislatures around the country california who've already voted to allow student athletes to be compensated for their name their image or their likeness the nca has got to talk about this this will be a big thing tomorrow also been one of the top rated high school senior basketball players in the country today announced not going to college going to try the g league that's a couple now in the last month that have said eh, i'm skipping going to Kentucky or Duke or whatever. I'm just going to go get my 500K from the G League and get ready for the NBA. I'm okay with this. I really am. I think there, there's certainly a lot of kids who want to go play college basketball, and this just opens up more opportunities for them. I don't know. The, people think it's going to hurt college basketball, these big-name guys not coming for their one year. I'm not in that camp. Why is it going to hurt it? I mean, you, I don't understand how it's going to hurt it. Yeah, you're going to be without – 
you know, some top talent for one year, but uh, you're not wasting a scholarship. There's not, you know, everybody that, that gets a scholarship wants it, wants the education, wants to go to class, wants the college experience. It's going to take a few of these five stars to just say to heck with it. I'm going to the G League, and we've already had a couple, and I, I hope the dominoes start to fall, and I hope this becomes a trend for every athlete that thinks he's good enough to go play in the G League right away out of high school and, and go compete. Not all of them are. There's going to be a lot of them that think they're good enough and they're not, but leave that decision up to them, just like in baseball. No, and you and I have talked about this in the past. Baseball's had it right. Give them the opportunity to go right out of high school. If they go to school, three-year commitment, you stay in. I think that's the best way to go. We do have a Runza Twitter poll up for you. It's based on our top ten list. Which of these is your pick for the greatest dynasty in sports history? The Bulls running away with it. It's got to be just top of mind, right? It's got to be <laughs> oh, the yeah. current thing. I mean, it's 73% are voting for the Bulls. The Patriots are next, followed by the Yankees, and then uh, 4% um, – with another comment in there, but it's got to just because it's we've been watching this on Sunday nights for the last two weeks. No doubt. Yeah. I mean, it's yeah, every, on everybody's mind and you know, MJ's MJ's one of the most popular sporting figures in the world right now, just because of what's been happening. Yeah, no doubt. All right. Uh, tomorrow night, president Ted Carter will join us. We've had him on for the last several Wednesdays to give us the latest with the university. Looking forward to that. Another edition of the Husker Huddle with Jeremiah Searles. How about this? Carlos Davis, our guest tomorrow night. So we'll hear from Carlos, the recently drafted Carlos Davis of the Pittsburgh Steelers. Another edition of famous face-offs headed your way tomorrow night as well. Going to be good to hear from Carlos. I don't know how, how much. Carlos isn't the biggest talker. We'll see how Jeremiah does getting him to say much. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm sure the, the player-to-player thing will make him more comfortable, but I think he volunteered his brother to Chicago for a reason. <laughs> so we'll look forward to having that tomorrow night. Our Sports Nightly Hotline is brought to you by the Woodhouse Auto family, bringing you more choices in brands, locations, and service. Experience the difference. Purchase with confidence. This is Woodhouse. Fun hour going over the top ten. I hope you enjoyed hearing Tom Osborne's message to all the student-athletes tonight at the virtual night at the lead that is just wrapping up over there on Huskers.com. Another hour of the books, another hour to go. Sports Nightly.